This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Hello, friends. How are we doing? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I was thinking, do I lie to you in this intro or do I tell you the truth? And since, you know, I'm all about accountability and transparency, I guess I have to say the truth. So here's the truth. This episode was recorded months ago and it fell through the cracks of our recording schedule and it never actually came out until right now. I actually texted Noah, I think last week, and said, hey, did we ever release that Jesse Curtis interview? And it turns out we did not. So Jesse, if you're listening, I am so sorry for the delay on this. I mean, this has gotta be close to six or seven months old now, which even though we're really backed up is still really long. So this is honestly a phenomenal episode. Jesse wrote a book called The Myth of Colorblind Christians, Evangelicals, and White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era. It is a phenomenal read. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is so educational, so helpful to really understand um, exactly what the book says, how colorblind Christianity really is a myth and how it did come into existence on purpose to maintain the status quo, which was to keep whiteness at the top and other people and particularly black people, not at the top with them. And it's a very well done, well sourced book. So we talk a lot about that. And man, it just it's amazing to me, friends, how it seems like the more I read these kinds of books, the more I dig into the history from actual Christians and, and academics and scholars of history, the more I'm dismayed at how deep-seated racism is in the evangelical church. But that's why we do this stuff. We try and and expose that by having credible voices on the podcast to help educate and inform you that, hey, this is part of our history. We have to recognize it. And then how do we look out for these patterns now today and call them out to do better? So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. And of course, friends, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. As you know, we did launch our big Project Amplify campaign. We have a whole strategy that we are forming to bring on more credible voices on all of our social media platforms to just have a more unified front, right? Of just how do we push back on so many of the harmful narratives that we're hearing so often? We 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 hear the distorted gospel, we hear the Christian nationalism. And what frustrates me is that I know there are so many people out there who have, who have amazing things to say and can help people, but too often their voices are limited because they don't have time to make social media content or to make their own podcast or do a YouTube video. So that's for week 
come in. So great news. We have raised so far close to $20,000 for this endeavor. Our budget, our goal to raise for this, or really for the end of the year, which is this month, was $150,000. So we are about 15% of the way there, which is definitely an amazing start. And that money go to, goes is going towards hiring staff, getting a small studio space, and having the team that can really think through how do we get more organized. Can I just be honest with you, no pun intended. I know I say that a lot. It's just how I talk, but I am not a very organized person. And the team who works with me will tell you that I have a hard time keeping on track. I have a hard time thinking about content beyond, uh, you know, a few days or a week or so. And because of that, I feel like our content suffers where we're not always as responsive or thought out as we could be to make a bigger impact. So part of the work needed to house um, more content is to have a strategy and have a team that can help speak into what does it look like? How do we organize? How do we get a calendar together? How do we think a little, bit, a little bit farther ahead than just a few days. So Project Amplify is a huge evolution of what we're doing, but simply expanding that, including the podcast. I really think that this podcast is so important for so many of you, for sure, but we can do it better. We can get a little more organized. We can we can do this stuff on YouTube better. We can have a little more um, strategy behind how we plan out our podcast episodes, etc. So anyway, I'm giving you a whole mouthful here, but the point is that I'm really excited for this project, I think it's a really healthy direction that we need to go uh, go towards. And there are so many voices that we already have on board who are interested in, in being contributors as we need them for different kinds of content, spanning cultural issues, political issues, theological conversations, etc. So thank you so much for the support. We are a nonprofit organization. All of your donations are tax deductible, which means if you want that sweet tax right off by the end of the year, now is the time to donate. All money is going right toward the organization to make this possible. We have a link in the show notes, it links to our Project Amplify campaign. You can give that way. By the way, we also are linked up with Fidelity Charities. So if you are someone who has one of those accounts and wants to donate that way, you can do it that way. We are we are on plenty of websites uh, for uh, for different employer portals for matching donations. So we have a lot of different options when it comes to donations. And again, thank you so much, friends, for donating. We have over 500 monthly donors that make this work possible. Our goal is to raise $150,000 by end of this year and to double our monthly donors because we need to keep the coals lit as we start hiring the staff, as, as we start paying contractors to come on, as we start having a team around me and also the organization to really think about this stuff in a wider and more strategic way. So anyway, I will stop talking about that now. Thank you so much again for your support, friends. I hope that you enjoy this episode with me and Jesse. Talk to you all later on. Hi, my name is Mary, and I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a monthly donor to the New Evangelicals. I'm really thankful for the work they're doing, and I think that there is a really important job to continue. That's why I offer my support between the pandemic, Donald Trump, the dehumanization of the LGBTQ community. I just think we really need to reevaluate um, what we're doing as a church, um, as evangelicals, as new evangelicals. So yeah, glad to be a part of this community and love the work. All right, friends. And 
Dr. Jesse Curtis, it is really good to have you on the podcast. I got your book a few weeks ago, The Myth of Colorblind Christians, Evangelicals, and White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era, because Kristen Dumay recommended it on Twitter. And I'm a fan of Kristen. We've talked a few times. I said, ooh, this is right up my alley. I'm trying to understand my own evangelical tradition in terms of you know, this conversation. So I picked it up and started reading and holy moly, what a book. And we have a lot to talk about. Before I do that, though, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience. Why don't you go ahead and do that and kind of give us your background? I I, I am curious. Did you grow up a, a white evangelical, so to speak? And what was that like for you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I did. I did grow up a white evangelical or or actually kind of straddling the line between evangelical and fundamentalist, which is a blurry line, right? Yes, definitely. But I would say I grew up more on the fundamentalist side of that line. And of course, as a kid, I didn't know that. Like I didn't, I didn't have the categories to name that. It was just, this is my life, this is my, my norm. Uh, I remember as a young adult, um, coming into awareness, like, oh, and even saying to a friend, I think I had a fundamentalist upbringing, like with <laughs> surprise in my voice, because like, I hadn't realized that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so grew up in Western Maryland, um, think Appalachia, really, like very small town, lots of farms, uh, sort of mountainous. A part of Maryland people don't know is there, right? Um, yeah, kind of, kind of like West Virginia, um, very white area. And my dad was a pastor of a small, independent, non-denominational, sort of fundamentalist, evangelical uh, <laughs> yeah. church. Yeah, and um, you know, I think that I'll I'll just launch right into this. I, I think that the negatives, the potential negatives of that upbringing you know, may be top of mind for us, but I want to say two positives first. All right. Um, one, I think my upbringing as a fundamentalist, and this is just my own experience, not speaking for anyone else, gave me a kind of historical consciousness. Um, because as a fundamentalist kid, like we were taught to critique the culture and as much as I look back on that now and say, well, okay, an awful lot of that critique was in kind of this vulgar and reactionary mode. Yeah. It still did give me a sense of, okay, there's, there's sort of the spirit of the age. There's sort of what's normal in the present moment, but we don't have to go along with that. There's, there's a broader story here. And I actually think that was something really, really valuable for me to learn, even though I, you know, would then have to discard some of the reactionary um, things attached to that. But the other thing it gave to me, um, and this is, you know, at, at the core, uh, is God consciousness that yeah. I've been unable to shake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, feel I, that. I know that, <laughs> you know, you've got uh, different, uh, we all have our own experiences and our journeys. And, but for me, uh, man, I talk to God when I wake up, when I go to bed, like I've been unable to shake this deep and no, I no longer want to, right. But this deeply ingrained, like, 
relationship, you know? Yes. Um, now the negatives, man, you know, looking back on it. Yeah. I think it was fear-based religion. You know, I, I think I grew up with a lot of fear that I'm yeah. still unpacking. Um, and then also the segue into the book, right? The racial angle here that, that I was in this nearly all white community, white church, white theology, right? Yes. And had no, I had no idea that that was the case in any meaningful way. Um, so that, that's my inheritance, you know, for good and for bad and has really shaped me both as a person and as a historian. Uh, honestly, I'm not a historian to be clear, but I, I feel like you and I share very much a, a very similar upbringing. Um, I would also describe my upbringing in New Jersey as a, um, you know, non-denominational fundamentalist upbringing, very John MacArthur heavy, uh, some pseudo Bill Gothard, uh, train up a child in the way that they should go kind of vibes. And I, I yeah. do agree, I think, with your two assessments, uh, although I never thought about them in that way, that uh, maybe two of the, I guess, silver linings we can say is that, yeah, I, I they did kind of radicalize me, whether they like it or not, even though I'm using that yeah. now to kind of critique some of that work. And I, I, I can't shake the God thing. Um, and yes, they have taught me to live the way I phrase it is live kind of counterculturally. Um, and again, I've shifted that I've shifted what it means to do that, but I was a hardcore, you know, metalhead kid skateboarding, thinking that wearing my abortionist homicide shirt is just like, you know, is just giving the middle finger in the Christian way to the culture. So I, I resonate with, with that part of it, even though it, it, again, it looks so different now, those, ingredients for me are, are are maybe some of the most core ones that drive the work I do today and why I'm reading books like yours, right? Why I'm taking time out of my day to read a very well done, but thoroughly researched book um, talking <laughs> about the myth of colorblind Christians. My question to you is, you know, what, what got you, because I'll just put it out there. I am writing a book as well, not like this, much more, you know, story-based than like research-based, but um, I want to hear more about your book, by the way. Yeah, we'll talk about it another day. You know, <laughs> this is, this is, you're the guest here. Um, but okay. one thing I'm realizing is just how much work it takes to put together right. a book, let alone one that, I mean, has what, maybe 60, 70, 80 pages of just sourcing. So what was the drive for you that made you say, yeah. I'm going to put blood, sweat, tears, tons of revisions, tons of sourcing into a book talking about the myth of colorblind Christians, evangelicals and white supremacy in the civil rights era. What was the, what's your why? Oh man, I had to do it. I just had to do it. And I'll, I'll explain why. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's been said that, that your first book is autobiography. Mm. Uh, even if, as in my case, it is, as you gently alluded to, it's a scholarly book, right? Uh, but it it's autobiography in a sense. I had to write it. Um, okay, backstory. I'll, I'll try not to take too long, but I, I feel like the backstory is useful. Definitely. Um, so I, I, I went to college, uh, you know, so I had this fundamental upbringing. I went to Moody Bible Institute, wow, Chicago, staying in that orbit, right? And, but here's the thing about Moody, whatever else it may have done incorrectly, it did one thing really, really right. It stayed in the city there mm -hmm. on the near north side of Chicago. And when I got there, 
um, the Caprini Green public housing, some of it was still there right next to Moody. Uh, and so I saw poverty and affluence right beside each other. And I had no previous experience to understand it, no context to put it in. And that poverty and affluence was clearly racialized, mm -hmm. right? I had no box to put it in. I had no understanding. Uh, and at the same time, man, I got to Moody. I'm in the city. I'm shocked by the city. And I had read the Bible through multiple times, cover to cover, because I was a good Christian kid, right? Of course. Sword drill right. champion. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I memorized all kinds of stuff. But anyway, I had never, I'd read but not seen all these passages about poverty and justice and God caring for the needy. Uh, I got to Moody and I literally started doing word search, you know, word search, poverty, and look through all the verses to talk about poverty. And I was shocked. I was like, how did I not see this before? Mm. Um, and then the other thing that happened, I met this woman, this young lady who became my wife. <laughs> and and she was going to Moody too, but she was talking about urban ministry and I'm going to live on the West side. And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so she started instructing me about race in America. Um, and then indeed we ended up getting married. I joined her out on the West side of Chicago. And that is again, the kind of thing that like you were, you use the word countercultural that like someone with a fundamentalist inheritance might do because it's this very unusual thing to do. Right. But yeah. like we're young and we're have this inheritance and we're like, okay, segregation is wrong. This poverty is unjust. Who cares that East Garfield park is 99% black. We belong there, mm. you, you know? And, and like, it was this very, um, jarring experience for me because I grew up in this colorblind context where I was simply a Christian and race didn't enter into it was yeah. my self-conception. I I'm living on the West side and like, I'm constantly feeling my whiteness, right? I stick out like a sore thumb and I'm thinking to myself, what does this mean? <laughs> you know, like, and, um, you know, just so many experiences that I had to reckon with. Uh, we're walking to church one morning, walking through the neighborhood, and a police car pulls up suddenly across the sidewalk, blocks our path. Cops jump out, and they're like, oh, we, you know, we got a tip. There's a white couple having a knife fight. <laughs> and we're like, we're walking to church, guys. And it was so interesting because the cops were like very, very quickly after talking to us, they were like, oh, if there's someone having a knife fight, it's not, it's not these people, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they left, but like, I had a backpack on, they didn't ask to look in my backpack. They didn't touch us, nothing. They didn't pull their guns. Right. Right. And so the cops leave and a neighbor across the street waves to me and we, we go over and we sort of debrief about what just happened. And he says, I, I bet that never happened to you before, did it? And I said, no, that I, I never had that happen. And he said, 
man, be glad you weren't black. He said, you would have been on the sidewalk, knee in your back. And all that to say, I had to, I could persist in the way I thought the world worked, right? But to do so, I, I had to like look my neighbors and fellow church members and people in the face. And basically, I would have to say, no, I, you're lying or your experience isn't valid. You know, like, right. You had to give way. I had to move. I had to let myself be shaken, man. Mm. And um, so that sort of dawning racial consciousness, it was like a second conversion, you know, yeah. it was so. And, and to me, like, that's what exposed for me. Like, if this feels like this earth shaking religious conversion, doesn't that show how important this invisible whiteness was to me? You know, in my upbringing. Right. And that's the sense in which this book is autobiographical, right? And, and so the journey then to that was the personal. Um, I wasn't training to become a historian, though. That wasn't in the works. Again, I owe that to my wife, who encouraged me to do what I love. And I said, okay, I'll take a shot at it. Started taking history classes some years after Moody. And it just so happened that um, the month I started my PhD work at Temple University in Philadelphia, that was August 2014, the month that Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri by a white police officer. And that was the time, um, if if people can recall back, and man, nine years ago now, goodness. Um, but that was the first time that Black Lives Matter protests really drew nationwide attention, a lot of attention. And I was following it in real time and I was seeing how my people, you know, people near and dear to me, fellow white evangelicals were reacting to these protests. And I was just so distressed. <laughs> and it I it and it occurred to me, like, okay, I I feel like the way we're reacting to this is unchristian, is calloused. Um, how did we react to the civil rights movement 50 years ago? You know, how did my people react? That was the question, right? And I wrote the book. <laughs> First off, thank you for sharing that part of your story. It's always important because it, it, I think it just helps ground the books. I think sometimes you can read a book like this and just kind of see it as like, oh, you just um, picked a random topic out of a book because whatever. And now we have a book on this. But I do believe, like you said, that you know our experiences really shape the work that we put out, especially as content creators. And that's what you are as someone who's an author. And um, I think a lot of people listening who are white, People, mainly probably some white men and white women are like, yep, um, similar ingredients. You know, maybe my wake up call was was someone else or was a different situation. But a lot of the same things went into what eventually gave me the wake up call. Of like, wait, something I don't know what it is, but just something isn't right. And one of my first books that I read on uh, American evangelical history, in a sense, was Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise, really accessible book. And I read that and I mean, I remember specifically when he talks about lynchings and he talks about um, a, a woman who was pregnant, who was lynched. And I mean, he does not hold back. He shares the details and I'm listening to this and I am literally weeping driving. I'm just like, Oh my God. I, I just had no idea of the brutality uh, in the, in the inhumaneness 
and the dehumanization um, that people have suffered at the hands of white evangelicals, frankly, and white Protestants. And that mm-hmm. set me on a path, right? And so I've been reading as much as I can, as often as I can, trying to understand this evangelical history to kind of understand how we got here. The, the I have found good news and bad news. And I would like your thoughts on this. The good news I have found is that what we're experiencing today is nothing new. The bad news I have found is that what we're experiencing today is nothing new. <laughs> you know, like I have found this to be in one sense, like, okay, so things aren't necessarily worse than they were, but also things don't seem to be getting much better. Um, especially when you, when you look at, when you look at like the housing problem or you look at wage gap or, or healthcare gaps, et cetera. And I'm seeing a lot of the same rhetoric. Maybe it's employed with different language, right? Maybe today the term is wokeness, um, as opposed to colorblind or whatever it would be, but we're drawing, uh, we're, we're drawing from the same well still as this white evangelical conglomerate, broadly speaking. In your work, did you find that to be the same case or have you seen evolution over time and things have gotten better and or worse? Yeah, I mean, first, I just think I think it's very complex and and nuanced. And I I think that the, the narratives of ideologues is to cast a total narrative that says it's all better or it's all worse. Right. Yeah. Um. And I, I, I agree with what you're saying that there are these thick continuities and that there's these, these rhyming things that recur. And part of what I think is, is so fascinating and, and damaging is that we, we come back around the circle, if you will, to a very similar place, but the new actors maybe it's a generation later, don't realize that we've been here before. Like there's this historical amnesia, you know, Yes, yes. and conversations today, wokeness and CRT and social justice versus the gospel are, like you say, the language has changed. The underlying issues, it's like we were debating this in the seventies. Didn't we settle this? No, we didn't, you know? And, but the, and, it, and it's not just, it, this is a more under the radar thing. You see this like for black evangelicals in white evangelical spaces who like in this Black Lives Matter era, there's been this incredible disillusionment, right? And people being sort of forced out and people feeling incredibly unwelcome, right? And in many cases, not necessarily having the historical strength of and this is where like tisby's book is so important right like we're building that um sort of historical community that to know that i'm not alone in my experience right right but like black college students you know in this age not realizing necessarily that black college students in the 90s went through a very similar thing and that Black students in the 70s went through a very similar thing, right? These yes. these cycles of disillusionment with the evangelical movement. And for white evangelicals, it's like, man, we can continue to say that you, you need to retell the whole story, right? And it, it doesn't mean saying, oh, 
our movement is total crap. There's nothing worth saving. Bye. It doesn't it, it doesn't mean you have to say that, right? But there's this desire, I think, in white evangelical circles to continue to hold this narrative that ours is the movement that has been faithful. Ours is the movement that has held on to the gospel. We have this storied lineage. We have this great heritage. Yeah. And it would mean a lot for white evangelicals on a mass scale to say, ours is the movement that has more often than not deceived itself, has often acted with cruelty, you know, yeah. and it doesn't mean you need to throw everything out. Right. But let's humbly confess where we've come from, you know? Yeah. And there's just so much resistance to doing that. So I, I want to dig into the book for a little bit. Obviously, we can't cover everything, but there there were a couple of things as I was reading me, we go, oh, my goodness, like this to what you said earlier. Yeah, we were here in the 70s. We were here in the 90s. And again, that's why I say it's good news and bad news. Right. Um, and one of the things I want to talk about is this 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 term, the church growth movement. Um, I'm very bad with names. Who was the person in the book who who you give credit to kind of starting that that movement? What what's his name? Yeah, Donald McGavran. Thank you. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat back to you what I read, and then you get to correct me as the, as the professor of the book. All right. But essentially, one of the vibes I got, and and again, the book is really tracing just how colorblindness kind of maybe was started, how it was created, how it was maintained. Um, yeah, McGavern, right? That, that's his last name. Yes. It sounds like what, what you're telling me is that his big thing was that churches grow numerically the best when they're homogenous, when they're of the same, whatever could be race, yes. could even be class, could be education level, but because of his overseas work in, in the mission field, um, his big thing was race. But what's interesting about McGavern, at least the way you talk about him is that I don't even, I don't think he saw himself as doing harm the way he saw it was like he, cause you mentioned in the book how he was very much against like the American missionary complex of so like exporting the, the colonialism of American ideology to India. Uh, for example, I believe, I believe that's, that's what you mentioned, but yet yeah. he's still like, well, for churches to grow though, groups are usually, they usually grow the most effectively if they're all kind of in their own little culture, whether it's, it's a race thing or something like that. Can you unpack that? Am I getting that right? Because that that's maybe a good example of the complexity and nuance of this colorblind yeah. thing where it's like, on one hand, I'm like, yes, McGavern's right. Like the colonialism of America and missions is like not good and imparting our culture on another. But then he's like, yeah, that's why black churches should stay black and white churches should stay white. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so help me un yeah. help, help the audience yeah. unpack that. Yeah, let's untangle these threads a bit because I do think the payoff is pretty big. Okay. Because right? part of the simplicity that we want to go with things is we want to say, well, if this guy did a lot of harm, Oh, he must have been a closet segregationist, or he must have been trying to do harm, or he must have been hateful. And we're never going to reckon with American religious history, the inheritance that some of us have, if we don't realize how well-meaning people, how things can go awry, you know? Yes. It's not like people in the past were monsters and we're innocent. They were much like we are, you know, and we yes. fumble through and try to, you know, we do some good, we do some bad, right? So this McGavern character, man, 
one of the most influential 20th century Christians you've never heard of, right? Yes, and, exactly. And, and the church growth movement, one of the most influential movements you've never heard of. And, and the audience, like, you've probably heard of names like Rick Warren, the, the mega church pastor who's retired now, he wrote The Purpose Driven Life. Well, Rick Warren was literally trained by the church growth movement. That's mm. where he got his his training in church planting and pastoring. Anyway, back to McGavern. All right. Um, <laughs> so we can be here all day. There's so many threads. I, I, I want to just sit here and unpack them. But anyway, keep going. Keep going. I'll listen. So, Tim, you you did um did it really well explaining this. Let me try to trace the thread quickly and show how McGavern changed and why that change happened. Okay. Uh, so he's born in India. His parents are missionaries. Comes back to the U.S. for training, and then goes back to the mission field in India in his own right in the 30s. And um, in the 1930s, fascinating. McGavern is an ecumenical Protestant. He's a liberal guy, and very comfortable in those circles. That's where he was trained. But he begins to look at the work they're doing and they're caring for the sick and the poor and the hungry. But he says, wait a minute, like, aren't we supposed to like make people Christians? And like mm. the churches are not growing. And by the way, if everyone has this eternal destiny, we're all going to heaven or hell. What's like more important than converting people to Christianity? And McGavern and he, he, there's influences that he's absorbing. He's not like this, you know, invents this thing out of whole cloth, but right. uh, we'll, we'll try to keep it relatively simple. McGavern says, you know, there's real potential here in central India for people to become Christian along past lines rather than across them. He says, you know, the problem with Western missionaries we're trying to turn everyone into Western individuals. We're trying to make them Americans or British as a price of admission to Christianity. He says that's wrong. And so you can see this kind of critique of cultural imperialism, right? Yes. McGovern's saying, let them stay Indian. And part of being Indian is they don't want to mix with people from other castes. Can we pause right here for a second? Can we just pause for, I don't want to interrupt you. This is very important. First off, I really want the audience to understand this because I think it's easy to, like you said earlier, paint everyone with just a broad brush of good or evil, but humans are complicated, right? If the logic of, um, I'm sorry, what's his name? I'm so bad with McGavern. Thank you. If the logic of McGavern is, hey, people are going to go to heaven or hell when they die. We believe that emphatically. So what's more important? Right. Just feeding them for a day or, you know, making sure that at the end of all time, they're not burning in hell forever. You can understand how someone can get there. Now we can debate the end of time and heaven and hell. That's yeah. a different discussion. Yeah, yeah. But like you understand that, right, audience? Okay. Now we have someone who is like, oh, you know, it's not fair for us to take our American ideals and enforce them on other societies. And I've wrestled with this. I'm 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 taking a tangent, but follow me. I've wrestled with this yeah. before because I've said to myself, um, are my more liberal ideals of whatever, um, what, you know, maybe human sexuality or, or whatever else it would yeah. be freedom. You know, if I look at other countries that don't live that way, um, even if some of them might, might be causing others harm, where's the line between me exporting my American ideals on another country's way of life versus 
helping others realize that, hey, part of this kingdom work is not dehumanizing the other, fighting for someone's you know oppression and liberation, et cetera. And so I can understand how McGavern, even though I understand the consequences now, but I can understand how in the moment, not thinking beyond his own box, he goes, wait a second, like it's maybe kind of imperialistic for me as the American to tell the Indian way of life that's existed for maybe hundreds, if not thousands of years. Sorry, guys, you got to change everything in order to be a Christian. I'm just getting in his head and saying, I understand it. I'm not saying I agree with it. I want to point that out for the audience to really think about that and, and let them sit with that. Yeah, I love that you said that. And that it's exactly right. Where is that line? So doing being fair to McGavern and saying, okay, he was in a complex situation. Yeah. Now, um, so he writes this book, comes out in 55, I think. And it's really an attack on Western missionary norms. And he's saying we need we can have whole people groups mm. coming to Christ without having to give up their sense of peoplehood. Makes sense. Okay. So far, Makes so good, sense. right? <laughs> but boy, something he says in this book, he says, "Hey," and this is almost a direct quote. He says, "It does no good to say that tribal peoples ought not to have race prejudice. Mm. They do have it and are proud of it." Now. That's descriptive. He's saying that's the situation. Then he goes one step further. He says, it can be understood. The race prejudice can be understood and should be made an aid to Christianization. McGavern looks at this race prejudice. He knows it's wrong, by the way. He mm. says, no, it's not Christian. It's not ethical. But we can use it to bring people into the kingdom of God. That's what he says in 1955. And the wild thing in wow. retrospect is that Gavrin, maybe because he was on the mission field for so many decades and was kind of out of touch with American society in some ways, McGavern had no concept of applying those ideas to the U.S. That was not on his mind at all. Interesting. He was really just thinking about the global South. That's all he was. This is this is for tribal peoples. You know, we all know that tribal peoples have a strong sense of peoplehood, you know, mm. now two big things that shift in the 1960s for McGavern that paved the way for this to become the dominant church growth method in the U.S. for evangelicals. Two shifts. One is missiological. McGavern, he still had a toe in that liberal ecumenical Protestantism, but in the 60s, they, they really diverge. McGavern is looking at liberal Protestants and he's saying, man, these guys don't even really believe in mission anymore. Mm. They're scared to convert people at this point. They talk about salvation, but really they mean political liberation and social justice at this point. McGavern, if before he had allowed those two things to coexist on some level, this individual salvation and social justice, now it's like a sharp dichotomy in his mind and we've got to prioritize salvation and make sure that social justice initiatives don't get in the way of that right 
Would you, would you, sorry to interrupt you. I just want to make sure I I got this down because this is very important. Would you say that in your estimation from your research that really the liberal and conservative split was over different types of salvation? A liberal might say it's about the physical salvation of liberation and a conservative, I'm speaking generally, like, like MacGyver might say, no, 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 it's about the spiritual salvation of the soul. That way they don't burn in hell forever. Is that, is that a fair like caricature of, of the, of the, the dichotomy? I'm not sure. I'll I'll say I'm not, I don't know. Like I, cause it's not clear to me if that's like a symptom of the split or the split itself. Got it. But, but in terms of identifying who's in what camp, yes, you see those different perspectives on the question of salvation. Got it. And so McGavern is feeling like liberal Protestants have become the enemy at this point. Like we really need to uphold the absolute priority of conversion. Social justice, that comes secondary, right? The other thing that shifts, think about the changes of the 60s, hard on the heels of the civil rights movement, the rise of black power, and on the heels of that, the rise of this white ethnic consciousness and and origin stories, people reclaiming their roots. I'm Italian, you know? And McGavern and people in his orbit in the early 70s, they're looking at this and they're saying, whoa, modern americans also have a deep sense of peoplehood Mm. and they can also be met where they are in their sense of peoplehood and we can grow the church along those lines of peoplehood and they update the language they make it sound more scientific homogeneous unit principle yes yes the hup is modern business-oriented capitalist society they really tap into that and it's absolutely explicit in the church growth teaching if you have a diverse church you are impeding the growth of the church and and in their context and in their understanding there's nothing more important than growing the church we're talking about people's eternal lives at stake and when you say and growth so, when you say growth you mean numerically primarily is that correct like hey the numeric. more people the better because then in theory, yeah. you're saving souls to not go to hell forever and you're converting people, which is the whole goal. So you can kind of see the cycle of why the numbers are so important, because for them, every soul in that church building that claims to be a Christian is one less soul in the depths of hell at the end of all things. And and think about think about two ironies here. All right. Two ironies. One is this movement that started in many ways as a critique of western culture in in missionary activity and the way that it was imperialistic is so by the time it's brought home to the u.s in the 70s it's so entangled with american capitalist values like numerical growth like is that the be all end all but in america bigger is better you you know it's so culturally loaded and so that's paired paired with with that hell thing, right? Paired with the belief that all yeah. humans everywhere are going to spend eternity in one of two places. It's almost like a match made in heaven, right? Because oh, this numbers thing that yes, is capitalistic, also supports our in, in our mind our love of people. So that way they're not burning in hell forever. So it's a very easy way to maybe convince yourself that what you're doing is actually great work, even if the results yeah. long term ended up being quite harmful for so many. Yeah. And it's, and this is, I think the other reason it takes evangelicalism by storm and not the mainline. Mm, yeah. 
evangelicalism is incredibly pragmatic. Yes. Incredibly pragmatic, always ready to pick up a tool if it seems like that tool works. And in that, and that's where people don't realize in so many ways, mainline Protestantism is more conservatism, is more conservative than evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is always in this ferment, always changing and shifting. Um, and that's true in this church growth movement thing. Now, the racial irony here, man, the church growth movement is race conscious. Quite obviously so. It's saying we can use race to convert people. But what does that do on the ground? It creates these monochrome white congregations where to people in the congregation, race is invisible. They're like, I don't think about race. I right. come to church and I worship God and and like, well, yeah, that's the whole point. We created this congregation that you don't have to think about race because everyone's the same, you know? Right. Um, and and then even broader than that, the sense that our use of race consciousness is legitimate because we're using it to bring people into the kingdom of God to convert people. Your use of race consciousness black evangelical who's calling for justice and reform in the institution is illegitimate because you're being divisive. Yes. <laughs> and so and so this whole Christian colorblind thing it's not always like literally not seeing race or paying attention to race. It's also a, a way of saying here's the particular ways you can use race correctly. And we're yes. allowed to do it but you are not allowed. Your use of race is illegitimate. Yes, and I, I think, I don't think it's a stretch, I'll say, to to tie this back to that liberal conservative split over if conservative, the, and again, I'm speaking broadly, but if conservative theology like by McGavern is, oh, um, save the soul, well, for, for black people to be saying, we need justice now, the response very simply is, no, 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 that's, that's the liberal gospel. That's maybe even now a false gospel. Um, that's not the important thing. You're too focused on the here and now and not the afterlife. So I, I, I you know, audience, I'm kind of talking to you directly. I hope that you're picking up on, on the cycle here and kind of some of the ingredients that laid the foundation for how we got here today, right? When you hear people like Alyssa Childers say, is, uh, you know, biblical justice is not social justice. I hear, I hear her picking up on threads whether she knows it or not, that go all the way back to this conversation of what is seen as the gospel or not. And this is important because in the book, and I don't know the name, what's the name of the event, the big event that, that like, yeah. the first, what, what, what's it called? Yeah. I, I cannot pronounce it in my head. I think you're talking about the Lausanne Congress. The Lausanne Congress. Yeah. Can I, can, can I pivot us here? Cause this is, I think an important yes. continuation. Okay. And again, I'm going to, say what I need to say. You tell me if I'm wrong on anything, but that conference that kind of springs up becomes like almost this massive evangelical, almost global thing, but there's a global oh, South absolutely. that is coming to this event. And then you have like the McGavern church growth movement that's coming to this event and they're at odds. And who's, yes. is it Padilla? Is that his last name? Uh, Padilla. Padilla. I'm re yeah. first off, thanks to you. I'm like, okay, I got to find this guy's writings because I love how you portrayed him in the book. But essentially, he comes along and is like, this church growth movement thing is steeped in racism, is actually hurting people, and also further 
demonstrates how American evangelicalism is not willing to listen to the needs of their global neighbor. And they're essentially at odds with with like McGavern and now also Peter C. Wagner, which for those of you out there, that name sounds familiar. He's really the father of the new apostolic reformation. So there's there's a lot of pieces at play here. And this is why the work that we do, it's important to have not just a one snapshot piece, because if you don't know who Peter Wagner is in the NAR that laid the ground for Christian nationalism, it's important to know that he was part of this, you know, church growth movement that was steeping colorblind theology that whether they see it or not was actually quite racist in nature. So, so there's a lot of pieces here, but that's kind of where I'm at with this conference. Do you want to maybe unpack some more of the, the tensions at play and kind of what was happening? Yeah, sure. And and just a shout out, by the way, in terms of Rene Padilla and associated things, other historians to read, uh, David Swartz, uh, David Kirkpatrick, uh, both of them, I, I'm not going to get the names of their books right at this moment, but both of them have written important books about the history of evangelicalism that uh, also have chapters on, on Padilla. Right, but anyway, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, this Congress, this is the 1974 World Congress on Evangelization. And really, it's a brainchild of Billy Graham. It's kind of actually a response to the ecumenical Protestant movement and, and their world um, congresses. And um, it is, it's global. It's not just an American thing. And, and so they come to Lausanne, Switzerland, thousands of people. And only a few people have the honor of like, you know, the big stage where you give a speech to the whole Congress, right? Like the keynote, the keynote speaking. Yeah. The keynote speakers, right? McGavern's one of them, Mm. but so is Rene Padilla. And he's coming out of South America and he's saying, you know, a, a gospel that is not concerned with justice and the poor is a false gospel and he this is something that even historians have kind of missed because it's not like padilla stood up on the stage and said mcgavern you're full of crap you know like (laughs) he he didn't name names in that sense but if you know anything about the terms that were active at that time you understand he's speaking directly to and about the church growth theorists and saying you guys are promoting a false gospel and For Padilla, it's like the call of Christ is the the call of a a new community. It's at once personal and social. It Yes, it regenerates the heart, but it invites you into a new community, a new way of being in the world. And you cannot go on being an oppressor and say, oh, well, I was converted, you know? Right, Um, right. And so there's this fundamental divide. And really coming out of that Lausanne Congress, there's institutional muscle, there's money to be had, like, you know, Billy Graham, the Southern Baptist Convention, there's a lot of major players in the orbit of this. And so who's going to like determine the direction that sort of international evangelicalism goes in these parachurch ministries and things? And the reaction to the Congress at first was like, oh, wow, the South American evangelicals took things by storm, and now we're going to have this more socially conscious evangelicalism. The justice-focused evangelicals kind of won the debate. 
oh man you know we yeah. wish perhaps but right right if only there is this conscious campaign on the part of church growth theorists including wagner and other allied american conservative evangelicals to try to make sure that the lausanne movement and the power associated with it is pushed toward evangelism first let the social justice aside you know and um I, in that chapter in the book, I trace the story to this lesser known conference in 1985, this conference on evangelizing ethnic America. Yes. And, and what's so fascinating about that conference, again, it's this very direct, like, we're going to use people's identities to advance the gospel, right? That for that purpose, it's allowed. But you know what they did? And I I found the smoking guns like in Wagner's. I don't know why Wagner didn't even destroy these papers. Oh, goodness. <laughs> but I found the smoking gun of the planners of the conference deliberately excluding black evangelicals and saying this conference is for for Asians and Hispanics and immigrants and all these different groups. Black evangelicals not invited. And it's like ostensibly because if we invite the black evangelicals they're going to try to put justice on the agenda and we can't have that mm. like that's that's what was going on but part of what's so fascinating is that the exclusion is explicitly racialized like they didn't even like say well let's invite you know a black evangelical who agrees with us <laughs> like they said we're just not going to do it you know but then word got out word got around and to sort of you know, cover their butts. They ended up late in the day inviting some evangelical black evangelicals to sort of, you guys can have your own little planning meeting to have your own conference in the future. Um, and so it just speaks to the way, and this is, you know, this is 1985. Right, right. It's not that long ago. I was born three it's years later for the record. Right. It's not that long ago. <laughs> And Wagner was at the center of this. Wagner was was in this. And and Wagner was literally in his private letters, literally saying things like, you know, we've found that when blacks are involved in the meeting, they take over. And, and it's like, what are you trying to do right now, Peter? Right. You're trying to control the, you know. <laughs> but um, the point is, we see here this sense that social justice even from fellow Christians who believe in so many ways the same thing you do, this concern for justice seen as a threat. Yes. We yes. cannot let anything disrupt this laser focus on individual conversion and evangelization, right? And, and the other point here, and this is where the nuance, we should not downplay the success of the evangelical movement in using this colorblind balancing act. I mean, look, in this conference, they are, they're bringing in Hispanic evangelicals, they're bringing in Asian evangelicals, they're becoming a more multi-ethnic movement. Yes. Now, the, the price of that, they're, they're at the same time, they're excluding and gatekeeping, but again, this evangelical movement that's pragmatic and quick on its feet and really is bringing new people into the movement, if it was like, wholly overtly racist and reactionary it wouldn't work right it's precisely this balancing act that has 
made it so successful for so long, I think. Well, think about, you know, uh, in Jay Russell, um, Russell Hawkins book, right? Um, uh, the Bible told him so. He he talks about on a higher overview level, not as detailed as you, the shift of the segregationist ideology and language from like the Bob Jones of the world saying, no, no, the Bible demands races should stay separate, you know, yada, yada, yada. As that fell out of vogue with like, the general population in America, that's when you start seeing this colorblind rhetoric come into play. And the point, I mean, at least my take on it, again, you're you're the historian here, but it sounds like the colorblind model, whether they were aware of it or not, was really used as a way to kind of freeze the status quo and kind of keep things wherever it was. So, hey, you know, um, we don't see color anymore. So if black people are still being oppressed, we just don't see it because we don't see color. Um, and also if white people are at the top, uh, you know, geographically or, you know, um, financially well we just don't we can't look at it on the basis of color because we're colorblind you know um but if it benefited them uh like as you demonstrated with that that uh event in the 80s where well maybe the black folks shouldn't come out because they're going to be too loud well then we can see color then it's no problem and that <laughs> makes it difficult to really pin down because sometimes i mean it's a very common thing now in the work i do people who don't who maybe disagree with us they'll use it all the time well, we don't see color why are you bringing race into this what they fail to realize is that, of course, they see color. They're just choosing how to look and, and what to do with what they see whenever they see the color you know, of someone's skin. And based on that, how society does have racial hierarchies, like whether we like it or not. And for me, I think that's what's so tricky here is like, how do you unpack all that right in one message response or one Instagram response? Because the world that we're swimming in thanks to the pragmatism of evangelicalism and also they're they're very well spoken they're very good at communicating things right they it's very slippery and very difficult because you can't just say well that person was a racist because when when you hear that people think you know oh was were they a kkk member well no it's more nuanced than that even if the outcome still had you know racist problems at the end of it yeah it's extraordinarily slippy slippery that's the right word and yeah, I think I think that I think it's worth being conscious of the fact what I think is a fact that a lot of ordinary people are not giving us a rhetorical facade when they talk about colorblind ideals. They have imbibed that and marinated in that for a long time and have internalized it and believed that. I think the more you go to like elite levels, like see Peter Wagner behind the scenes, he's conscious of what he's doing. Right? He couldn't not be. And But a lot of ordinary people, I mean, that's the power of this theology, that it comes to be seen as merely the, just simply the obviously Christian way to approach racial issues. I mean, didn't Paul say, we're one in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And so these, these impeccable, credential you know the apostle paul get folded into this and um i think that for us like in in engaging with people who hold these ideals um i think it's important to uh recognize that we we can't read their minds right And, and i can't assume like you were saying like oh when you said this colorblind thing I know that really you you just must be so hateful, you know, you know, like that doesn't that's not charitable it's, and it's not useful. Um, but I think that um, 
there's value in uh, engaging with if affirming what we can affirm, saying, oh, you know, that sounds really nice. Have you thought about, <laughs> you know, and and I, I think that um, we need to, who am I speaking for? I'll just speak for myself. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't want to get drawn into the trap. This, this simplistic binary of thinking like, well, if that person is defending colorblindness, I need to defend race consciousness because both of those things are tools, right? Like, like the end goal, if race consciousness as such is like the end goal, well, that's pretty lame. Like the end goal is like human flourishing, you know? Right. And, right. and so not getting drawn into these ideological litmus tests. Now I'm going far afield from what I don't have credentials for this. I'm just a historian. Anyway. That's what I do on my podcast. I, I draw you in the deep waters and let you start swimming. <laughs> oh, can we finish the, I'm, I'm curious. You feel free to finish the thought. Oh, this is oh, just you oh, opining. Well, I, Go for it. I just think, you know, you look at the discourse on Twitter, which is sinking now, I guess, but, um, yeah. and I, I'm wary of, and perhaps especially for people who grew up in this colorblind context thinking, okay, race doesn't matter. Racial discrimination is a thing of the past. We're all one in Christ. Christian identity comes first, right? We have these, these notions and we learn better and we say, oh, whoa, race really matters. But it's not going to be productive for us to replace one simple rule with a new simple rule. Because like human difference and how we navigate human difference and questions of justice, it's really complicated. Yeah. And I'm reminded of a guy in, in my book, one of my the key black evangelical characters in my book, Bill Pinnell. Yes. Now, this was yes. 1968. The language he used was different, but he came out with this book in 1968, this angry book blasting his fellow evangelicals, white evangelicals, for their racism. And one of the fascinating things he says in that book is he talks about how you know, as a black man, he has experienced not being seen in two different ways. And he says, you cannot see a man by like only seeing that he's black. Oh, yes, I know what black people are like. And, you know, he's, he's that's dehumanizing, you know. And then he says, or you cannot see him by insisting that he's just a man. And, oh, I, you know, I don't see race. And he says, that's dehumanizing too. And so the, what, like the end result of all of this is not like, oh, simple, like instead of being colorblind, now I'm going to be race conscious. Well, we've all seen examples of bad race consciousness, right? Like yep. say there's that lone black student in the room and the teacher sets them up to have to be the spokesperson for their group. Exactly. Well, that's race conscious, right? But that's right. really destructive, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just, you know, that's sort of a silly extreme example, perhaps. But like, all that to say, I think, both as citizens and those of us who who still, uh, you know, as a Christian, like, man, I'm called to just get face to face with the messiness of human experience. And no sort of ideological rule is is going to suffice for that as i work for justice in the world yeah i mean the, these aren't formulas right it's not you don't right. insert formula and get the same result because 
we're all human and we're really complicated. And it's interesting as you were talking, I'm like, yes, I've been thinking about this a lot myself because um, when I first started this work and I was having these awakenings, um, you know, of like race consciousness and oh my God, like something is wrong here and things are making more sense for me to see things I didn't see before. You know, a lot of my friends that I was making, especially online, I would follow them and, you know, they were, they were black creators and they were brilliant. And they would say often like, you know, I'm not your token black friend. I'm not, I'm, don't ask me for every single answer to every single black problem. I'm like, wait, I don't get it. What do I do now? Like, how do I navigate this? It took me, it took me a lot of time to, to really start understanding that, right, the black community is not monolithic. And it's not fair for me to ask one black friend to say, hey, can you represent all of black huh. America with this question? And also, that's not fair because it also dehumanizes my relationship to them because now I see them as a tool for my own learning as opposed to a human being made in the Imago Dei, yeah. right? So, like, I am still navigating this, to be clear. And I'm getting a lot better. Yeah. Um, of asking for permission and, and and asking for boundaries and you know saying hey I, I just have a, a question for your perspective but I can see how like you said race consciousness can become really unhealthy and taxing for racialized minorities in America especially the black community as they're as they're navigating their own trauma of living in a society that really was not built for them although it was built a lot of it by them for free under inhumane and dehumanizing and evil conditions right so i think there is a good example of that of just like yes um these are not um no pun intended they're, they're not black and white rules right it's not just a or b or insert this i think it takes wisdom it takes also a sense especially for white evangelicals one thing i i think really stuck out in your book that was um it only reaffirmed my my thoughts was that even with mcgavern's best intent you know it didn't take him long to really have that like american elitist position of like well we just know best things center around how we see theology the bible the gospel and folks like um um Padilla, uh, Renee Padilla was like, you guys don't get it. Like, it's still all about you. <laughs> and like, you need yeah. to listen. You need to listen. You need to listen. And I think a lot of us who start this, like, even deconstruction process, it's hard for us to lose that part, right? Because we want to just immediately become like the new authority on things that maybe we don't need to be authorities on. Maybe part of our renegotiating of faith is learning how to be a student. And an observer instead of always having to give the newest answer to things right so that those two things really stuck out to me a lot in the book that i was like yeah this is good for us to be taking in, into consideration now that is so good yeah i mean we i come out of a context where and i wrote about it as you say in the book collectively evangelicalism the story is we own the gospel yep where are the ones while the liberals went off and went off the deep end and lost the gospel, <laughs> we held on to it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's toxic because the, well, for lots of reasons, but uh, just to double down on what you already said, the essential spiritual, you know, we talk about like factors in racism and anti-racism and how to do it and whatever. We don't talk enough about the spiritual posture associated with these things. And the essential spiritual posture of racism is fear and pride. 
I think. Like someone who has given themselves over to racism is proud and afraid. And the pride and fear probably came first. Anyway, the essential spiritual posture of anti-racism for a white person, I think, is humility. Yep. Humility. Now, I, anyway, I'm just, I'm just, ta- we're taking us to church here, but anyway. <laughs> All about it. That's why, that's why we do the podcast. I, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, I think it's important, um, especially for this conversation to, if you're a white former or current evangelical, really to listen to the voices of uh, black folks who are doing the work, you know, just to understand and also understand that, that that they don't all agree. We need to stop pretending that even CRT and anti-racism agree on everything. They don't. You know, Ibram Kendi has has different takes than someone like, um, oh, my God, I have his book here. Um, who was the one of the founders? What's his name? Uh, Derek Bell. That's it. Yeah. Derek Bell, uh, who was one of the creators, really, and founders of CRT. They, they don't always agree on things. And I, I think right. it's it's not intentional, but it can become racist when we just start assuming that one or two people um, speak for a plethora of any group, any group. Right. I mean, Charlie Kirk and I are both white people and we have very <laughs> radically different perspectives on almost well. everything. <laughs> That's why I was confused when I came on the podcast because I thought to get a sense of what you, how you operated, I would just listen to Charlie Kirk a bit, and then I thought I would understand. But you're perfect. <laughs> you're really different from Charlie Kirk, so my yeah, bad. I, I know we're not we're not all white Christian nationalists. I promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Jesse, this was a great conversation. I really want to keep the door open uh, to getting you, you know, another some other capacity part of our work. I, I think the work that you and others are doing. It's tedious. It is not my gifting, but it sounds like it's yours. And it's important because people like you help us understand what we're swimming in. And I think a lot of people who are walking out of what I call the basement of evangelicalism just had no idea of the world above them um, and just had no idea of, of even how this foundation came into existence or just the air that they were breathing. And folks like you and others help us understand that. So, uh, friends, the book is The Myth of Colorblind Christians evangelicals and white supremacy in the civil rights era. It's available now. You can buy it wherever books are sold. Jesse, are you online? Are you are you rage tweeting at Christian nationalists all day? Are you on threads now? Instagram? I, I'm on. I mean, I'm on Twitter and I haven't really been tweeting anymore. You know, it, it feels like such a toxic place. It's uh, terrible. I so I am on Twitter, but um, I'm, I'm kind of defunct right now. So uh, just just Google my book. <laughs> All right. Also, if you have an Instagram, you should really should hop on threads. It's a much better place so far. Knock on what I mean, by the time this comes uh, out, maybe it's another Christian nationalist cesspool. I don't know. But at, at the time of this recording, it's worth being on there. So, <laughs> okay. Okay. Sweet. Well, uh, Jesse, for real, keep in touch. Let's keep the conversation going. Thank you for your book. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate it very much. <laughs>